0: Hello, and welcome to the 7 Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a webinar with Matt Dillard, the Director of Emissions of the George Washington University Law School, and Rob Schwartz, the Assistant Dean of Emissions of UCLA Law. Our two guests are hosted by David Busis, a partner at 7 Sage Emissions Consulting. They begin, as usual, by talking about their schools and then describe their admissions processes for David before taking questions from the audience. They're both wonderful guests who are refreshingly frank about what does and doesn't impress them. I think you'll leave with a better idea of how and why law schools make the decisions that they do. So without further ado, enjoy the webinar.
1: Hi, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David. I'm a partner here at Seven Sage, and I'm so pleased to host Rob Schwartz of UCLA Law, and Matt Dillard of GW Law. Rob Schwartz joined the UCLA UCLA School of Law in October 2006 after serving for 11 years as the Dean of Admissions at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law of Yeshiva University. A 1992 graduate of Cardozo, he practiced law for several years before entering law school admissions. Rob has served on a number of LSAC committees, and most recently completed service as Secretary of the Board of Trustees for the Law School Admission Council. Matthew Dillard is the Director of Admissions at George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. Matt is also an alum of GW Law, and he earned his B.A. in History from Vassar College. Matt has worked in law admissions for more than a decade and in legal higher education for more than 15 years. His favorite part of helping to assemble the GW law entering class is getting to know students from around the country and counseling them as they contemplate their law school plans. Matt serves on the board of directors of the Northeast Association of Pre-Law Advisors and on the LSAC subcommittee on misconduct and irregularities in the admission process. He has presented on more than 100 panels before prospective law students and pre-law advisors, And he's delighted to present his 101st, or maybe more than 101st, tonight. So Matt, Rob, thank you both so much for joining us tonight. I'm really happy to host you. Nice to be here. here. I'd love it if you could each tell us a little bit more about your law school. And uh, Rob, I'll just have you go first. So could you just talk to us about what makes UCLA Law special in your eyes?
2: Sure. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of great law schools out there, and I, I would say to all the prospective students listening, hopefully you can really enjoy this opportunity to uh, investigate and research law schools. Um, you know, obviously, when we work for a particular school, we think very highly of it, uh, but part of my job also is recognizing that this may not be the right place for every single person, and part of what I like to do is, is as Matt does, I know, get to know students through the process and help them figure out what is gonna be the best fit for them. Uh, I could talk about UCLA Law School forever. There's so much to say about the school. Uh, We bring in about 300 students each year. um, And I happen to think that one of the hardest things about law school, definitely at UCLA, probably at most law schools is deciding what to study in the second and third year, because unlike uh, undergrad, you don't have to major in a particular area. Uh, But if you wanna focus and specialize at UCLA, there are about seven different areas where you can do that. Um, Obviously, entertainment law is one of them. We are in Los Angeles, so we have to have that as an option. Uh, But we also have a very strong program in human rights. Uh, We've recently established a big gift in a center called the Promise Institute for Human Rights. We also have a center and a specialization in the area of environmental law through our Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. We have a strong public interest law and policy program. A lot of our students go into public interest law when they graduate. We have a unique program in critical race studies. uh, One of the few schools that offers extensive course offerings in the study of race, gender, and the law. We also have a law and philosophy specialization. Um, I'm not sure if that's seven, but those are the, the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. And we have a pretty huge clinical program. For those of you in the audience that don't know what clinics are, definitely investigate them. Most schools offer clinics today. UCLA has about 40 different experiential clinics, and we require our students to do at least six credits before they graduate. I wish I had more of that in law school where you get some hands-on opportunities um, to figure out uh, what it is like to practice as as a real lawyer. So, uh, short of that, I would say it's a very collegial environment here. The dean sponsors a number of uh, get-togethers throughout the year where students and um, and faculty come together and uh, in our in our courtyard outside and are able to socialize. And um, that always is a always is a nice event. So, just a brief introduction.
1: Thanks, Rob. Matt, I'm hoping you can do the same and just tell us a little bit more about GW Law. Sure. Um, Well, I'm happy to be
3: here with Rob. Uh, It's nice to have both coasts represented uh, this evening. Um, So uh, GW Law, for those who might not know, is actually located in Washington, D.C. We are uh, right in the heart of downtown. So for many people who've been to Washington, D.C., they are familiar with the most publicly well-known parts of the city, like the National Mall, the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, uh, the Capitol Building. And GW Law is located just a few blocks from all of those things. So if you've been to DC and been to the Smithsonian or other famous parts of the city, you've actually been within quick walking distance of George Washington University and the law school itself, which is right on the main campus. Um, Because we are located within the heart of one of the world's legal capitals, the idea here is to not only partake in the sort of rich curriculum of the law school, um, which encompasses about 275 or so different elective courses that students can take after their first year, but also to be actively engaged with life outside of the the law school and and get involved in field placement opportunities, internship opportunities that allow people to uh, enhance their uh, academic experience with actual experiential learning itself. Um, And they can do that through internships or through clinics. you know, when you're in law school in DC, you're really existing in the cradle of so much that's happening in the world legally. Just today, um, my torts professor, Jonathan Turley, was on Capitol Hill testifying uh, before the House Judiciary Committee regarding the impeachment hearings. Um, and that kind of thing is just happens all the time here. Um, the life of the law school is incredibly robust, uh, it's busy. Um, I say sometimes, GW Law is not really the place to go to law school if what you are looking for is a place to quietly stick your nose to a book for three years and never look up. That's just not the vibe here uh, because things are going on every day. Speakers are uh, coming in all the time. Our Student Bar Association, which manages all of our student organizations, is uh, awarded even by the American Bar Association for its extremely busy and robust uh activity and organization listing on the kinds of things that they do on a weekly basis here. So it keeps things interesting. I think people come here uh, knowing uh, how to lead balanced lives. And uh, and it's, it's a, because people are leading balanced lives, because everybody's here to kind of do something different than their friends, um, it keeps things very uh, friendly and collegial as well. So uh, the one thing I know Rob would um, agree with me about is that you know we hope that if you're interested in either of our schools or you're interested in other schools out there that you get the chance to visit because that really is what is going to help you distinguish one school from another uh there are so many ways in which law schools can kind of look similar if all you're doing is looking at websites or view books so visiting really helps you get a sense of the different vibe of each institution and we hope you'll do that
1: thanks so much so matt i'm gonna go straight for the jugular here um Here's what I think everyone really wants to know. What happens after they send in their application? How does it actually work? So um, in as much wonky detail as you are allowed to disclose, we'd love to know, you know, are these sorted by algorithm? Who reads what file? Are faculty involved? How many people have to say yes? Um, Anything you can tell us, I think, would be really illuminating.
3: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And, you know, I I really think that, you know, we want to exp- share as much about um, the um, application experience itself from our end for the applicants. We're not, we don't want to hide the ball um, at all. So for us, uh, when applicants apply, uh, their application comes in through the Law School Admission Council. There's no doubt that the audience members listening here know what the LSAC is. Um, and, uh our app the applications come in and they are uh essentially reviewed by our uh fantastic administrative staff to make sure that all the component parts that are required are there uh the you know like the application itself it, uh, has the applicant completed their personal statement have they submitted any other optional or other statements um and uh you know do we have their letter or letters of recommendation uh is their transcript there do we have their lsat score etc and once that is done um the applications are sorted very randomly um there's really no algorithm applied in our process there's no way in which certain people are looking at certain applications and, and others are not it is essentially a completely randomized process by which um The uh, three people in the admissions office including myself the dean of admission and the associate director of admission are reviewing applications and we are reviewing them from beginning to end we open an application and we Start at the top we go all the way through Um, and the the two major components of the application um, to the extent that um, applicants may be unaware of it are the uh, CAS report or the law school report, as it could be called, that's put together by the credential assembly service through LSAC, which assembles the applicant's transcript, um, letters of recommendation, writing samples uh, from the LSAT and the LSAT history um, into, you know, the, the LSAC assembles that into a report, so we have that as one piece of it. The second piece is our application itself, which includes really the applicant's story, you know, all the things about the applicant that the applicant's sharing with us, whether it's essays, um, optional statements, any addenda that the applicant may wish to submit, and biographical information that we're asking in our application. And uh, that goes to a first review by one of the three people that I just mentioned, and then uh, a decision is made on that application whether to admit the applicant deny the applicant or wait list the applicant And then it is that decision is reviewed by a second person in our office to ensure that there is agreement and most of the time there is um, and uh, once there is agreement among people in our office typically Uh, The decision is made very few applicants uh, in our admissions process are going to go to a faculty admission committee Um, That may be different at some law schools, you know, that's where the process gets really particular from one law school to the next Um, but we typically are reserving uh, faculty input uh, for applications that you know raise a certain question for us, whether it may be um, a character and fitness issue that we would like a faculty member to have their, um, get their input on, or perhaps it's an applicant uh, where there just isn't really strong agreement among the people, uh, you know, the professional staff here in the admissions office who are making the decision itself.
1: That's really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, so I actually asked Rob this same question in a previous webinar, and I encourage you to look it up. But for now, um, Rob, Matt told us that when they find um an applicant is iffy for some reason, there might be a character and fitness issue, and uh, there might be something else, you know, they send it to the faculty committee for special consideration. How does UCLA law make the decisions on, on the really tough applicants? On the applicants, and by tough I mean applicants uh, about whom it's tough to make a decision?
2: Well, I would say in a couple of ways. Uh, we certainly do, uh, like uh, Matt was describing, we do have a faculty committee that we that we can use at our discretion that reads a, a, a number of files each year where we want them uh, to take, uh, take a look. But uh, it's not uncommon for us with some of those files also to conduct an interview, which we do usually via Skype um, so if there's questions that we have and I think Matt you know gave a perfect example it's not the only example but the one that comes to mind now is character and fitness issues where we just want to get some more information maybe maybe the explanation wasn't that detailed maybe we want to know more about it maybe we want to see how the person uh, uh, appears about it talks about it in person uh, so that would be another way to get at it. We might do both of those things we might have an interview and we might also, then, send the file onto the committee, or we might send the file onto the committee, and they might say, "Hey, you know, do an interview, then we might bring it back to the committee." So it can be a combination of things depending on the on the particular situation, but that's pretty much how we get at that. Um, hopefully that helps answer your question.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear from both of you, starting with Rob, what sorts of things give you pause? Um, so first, what specific kind of character and fitness issues um, are maybe not an automatic rejection, but really make you think? And beyond that, what other sort of things, be it maybe a big resume gap or, um, I don't know, you tell me, is is going to make you wonder if this is going to be a good fit?
2: So I, I can try to give some examples, but I think, and I will, but I think what, what makes it difficult is it's impossible to think of, of everything. And I think just a good I'm afraid if I say a few things, then people think, like, oh, well, I don't have that, so that's not a problem, or oh, I do have that, so that is a problem. So I can give a few examples, but I think what's most important for people watching to know if they're going to be applying to law school is you need to think a little bit about um, not leaving any questions unanswered, number one, and number two, you need to get some good advice about how to, about questions that you have. And I don't want to be too specific, but, you know, it's not uncommon for me to talk to somebody and maybe they weren't very specific. And I'll say, well, why weren't you more specific about that? And they'll say, oh, well, that was the advice I got from X, Y, or Z. And I'm just surprised that they wanted to get the advice from whoever that person was, as opposed to from me. I mean, I have no problem with somebody. I'm going to review the application anyway. So, you know, there, there is, I have no problem. That's what we're here for is to try to help and advise somebody in our office. It doesn't have to be me. It could be another member of the admissions committee, but you could say, Hey, you know, I, I have this character and fitness issue, right? I'm going to know about it eventually. So, or if you want to do it anonymously, do it. And, and, and I'm, I want your advice on this. You you might as well go right to the source. So, you know, I, I think the kind, some, having said that some examples could be um, if some incident happened relatively recently, maybe, uh, maybe maybe there was an issue of um, uh, a plagiarism in, in college. Maybe there was um, some sort of a criminal um, act that uh, somebody uh, uh, committed. Uh, maybe there was a DUI. Um, and 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 maybe based on the uh, explanation or lack of explanation, uh, I have some questions about it. So <clears throat> those are just a few examples that are quite common, I guess, you know, that we see. Uh, I'm sure Matt could maybe think of some others, but th- those are some that come right to my come right to me right now.
1: Yeah, Matt, could could you um elaborate a little bit about other things, maybe non-character and fitness issues that might give you pause that people can think about as they're putting their application together?
3: Sure. Um and I just want to echo one thing that Rob said about the character and fitness issues a lot of times with those, the ones that really give pause would be ones where there's a pattern, you know, where it seems like a, an individual had not just, you know, one alcohol infraction, but there have been four, you know, something like that. And not to get I, again, with as Rob said, I don't want to get too mired into details because then the applicants might think too much in in, in specific terms. But but patterns are something that would raise red flags. Other than that, David, you know, really when we're reviewing an application, in all elements of the application, um, we are looking for evidence of good judgment. Uh, being a lawyer, being a good law student, being a good member of our law school communities is going to necessitate some level of, of uh, good judgment. And so when we're reviewing an application and we see evidence that Really kind of raises a, a question about that. Uh, and that could be anything from, you know, the way that a sensitive topic is discussed in a personal statement to uh, something that a, a letter writer might say in in a reference um, that raises a question about um, you know, personality characteristics that, that a, an, an applicant may have. Um, it could be uh, the way in which an applicant uh, even deals with our admissions office, you know? I mean, uh, we note when, uh, you know, someone talks with one of our excellent administrative staff and may have been n- not p- treating them in the most professional manners, you know? So anything such as that, that events is a problem with judgment, um, is is going to be the thing that that could really raise that kind of red flag. And the kinds of things that could give rise to that are multitudinous and very diverse, right? So, um, like I said, we're reading the entire application and in every element of the application, um, you know, we're keeping the issue of judgment in mind. when uh at the members of your audience are in law school They will hear a phrase uh, Very, you know quite repeatedly called the reasonable person standard um, and I encourage people to sort of Internalize what that is but prior to law school. I think it's fairly self-explanatory and to um Invoke that during the law school admissions process. So in other words, even apart from issues of uh, Judgment per se if you know if they're uh, putting together their application and they uh, Go far outside the bounds of the advice of Providing or the direction that we're providing as part of the application itself and provide a a seven-page personal statement when what we've requested is a two-page personal statement, that's not a very reasonable thing to do. So, you know, things of that sort may also just kind of raise uh, a flag with some readers of files. And keep in mind, too, you don't know who's going to be reading your application. Um, You know, so if if you're discussing sensitive things, you know, keep in mind that you want to treat it in a professional way because this application is your first request to become a member of a profession. So even if you're dealing with the most personal of topics, you want to address those topics in a way that is still in comportment with the professionalism that, you know, um, should be demonstrated in the application.
1: Can we drill down on that for a moment? We'll, we'll, do sort of a lightning round of sounds okay. Doesn't sound okay. Um, would it be, Appropriate under any circumstance, for example, to write a personal statement about um I don't know a, a a disabling gastrointestinal illness that you know was a challenge that that you got through, but is very personal I, I would have no problems I've actually probably there's not a topic you could mention
2: that I haven't read haven't done this right. so long. that's so, so true. yeah, and I think you know one of the one of the factors we're very, clear, we're very clear that we consider in making admissions decisions is, is any challenges somebody has faced or obstacles that somebody has overcome. And so sure, why not?
1: So one, one thing I'm taking away, because I, I have heard people say how personal is too personal, and, and one thing I'm taking from this is it's not really about the topic itself. There's probably nothing that's inherently too personal. It's about how you treat the topic. Is, is that fair? I think
3: that's absolutely right. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that specific example because one of the best personal statements I read last year was related to a very personal issue, similar to the kind that you, you mentioned in your, your example, David. Um, it's about the treatment of the issue, not necessarily the, the subject matter that's discussed itself. Um, so people have, uh, you know, discuss all manner of things. Like Rob says at this point, I think we've we've seen countless examples of of sensitive topics that have been raised uh, in applications on a broad spectrum of you know very appropriately to inappropriately.
2: But I think it's also important to add lest everybody watching think that they need to come up with some uh, mm-hmm. you know unique or a circumstance or some obstacle that they have uh, overcome the majority of applicants, you know, don't necessarily do that. It, it, it's a very personal decision what to write about. And, and I think it's important to be yourself um, and to share with us something about uh, yourself that, at least in our case, we want to have some indication most of the time as to why somebody wants to go to law school. Now, not every school is going to agree with that. Um, but at least here, sometimes we'll read a statement. It's very interesting, but there's absolutely nothing nothing in the file about why law school and that is at least something even if it's just minimally that we want to at least get get something at
1: rob how do you feel about a personal statement that's um largely unrelated to your motivation for attending law school for example your interest in carving miniature animals and what it's taught you and then the writer pivots to law school at the very end you know, the, you know, the lessons that I've learned from carving miniature alligators are going to stay with me and make me a better lawyer.
2: That could work. I think that we, you know, have admitted people over the year who've written personal statements that don't address at all why they want to go to law school. We have not admitted applicants who all they did in the personal statement is talk about why they want to go to law school. So there's no right or wrong to this. I just advise people, at least for us, when they're applying here, that somewhere in the application should be some indication of that. We also have a question about any of our programs that they're interested in, which somebody may or may not have an idea yet about, but if they do, it gives them another opportunity there to at least touch upon that.
1: Matt, what about you? you, Are you looking for evidence of an applicant's motivation? Do you need to know why they're going to law school, and do you need to know it from their personal statement?
0: Not
3: necessarily. I mean, I, I come down pretty much where Rob is on this topic, which is to say that, look, you are completing a law school application. <clears throat> so it it would perhaps behoove you in the process to have been thoughtful about why it is that you um, would like to go to law school. And the demonstration of that thoughtfulness could be helpful in, in, in our own decision-making process. Um, we're not I, I will say that you know going to law school because you're not sure what else to do is not a great reason to go to law school. So we're aware that you know there could be people who may be putting forth an application um, in, in that spirit. Um, so I, I do think it's nice if an application is at least wrapped up, or excuse me, a personal statement is at least wrapped up, or that the application itself is at least wrapped up in some way uh, and in its finality with discussing why law school. Um, that said, you know, I don't necessarily uh a person does not need to know exactly what they want to do as a lawyer um it, it's not important to me to read you know that uh someone wants to become you know an international uh, an international lawyer of some sort if if they want to write about that, I think that's fine, but it's not like I'm looking for uh you know someone to be very detailed in what they want to do with their careers because quite frankly even many people who come into law school thinking that they know exactly what they want to do end up doing something else you know you're in law school to learn things to be exposed to things and and so in the same way that members of your audience probably did not know when they were seniors in high school exactly which electives they wanted to take when they were seniors in college because they hadn't discovered a lot about themselves and about what was out there to learn yet. In the same way, when they get to law school, they're going to learn an awful lot about all the things out there related to this incredibly broad field of law that touches every area of life in the United States and the world around us. And so we're not necessarily looking for them to pinpoint um, what in that broad constellation of, of items they're gonna be pursuing specifically.
1: That's helpful. One question that um, I've seen people ask over and over again is, you know, what, if anything, can they do to help persuade you to accept them if they are either below both of your medians, both the LSAT and the GPA median, or, you know, if they're maybe at one and far below the other? Well, what sort of thing will make you sit up and say, I, I just want this person in my class? And, and that's a very broad, poorly constrained question. But if you can answer it, I think people want to hear.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I think uh, for anybody with any particular set of numbers, right, as you said, what if somebody is at our median and has this GPA uh, or has both numbers below, you can look, we, we make that information available to you to see how many people applied last year and how many people were admitted and you will have some sense of what the likelihood is that you can do that right so if whatever set of numbers you are you know we had let's say about 6200 people apply to the law school last year you know we we can narrow that down well there were maybe a 100 people in this group and 50 of them were admitted or two were admitted or 90 90 were admitted and you will have right some sense of your likelihood and it is the kinds of other non-numerical factors that are going to matter more, depending on you know where you fall. If you're in that 50% bucket, well, those those non-numerical factors are obviously going to matter a lot. Um, if it's you know one or two, boy, you know it's sort of like winning the lottery, right? Something's going to have to really uh, stand out. What could those things be? There could be so many things, you know. May, I, I, you know, there, but we, we could. We could go on for three hours about examples of that, but you know it could be somebody, for example, we see this a lot, right? Who's been out of undergraduate school for a, a long time. Maybe they didn't do very they didn't do very well in in undergraduate school for whatever reason. Maybe it was a long time ago. It, well, they just weren't serious about it. They had some health issues. They uh, whatever they were dealing with at that time. But now they've applied. That they, now they've had a whole career. Uh, they want to go to law school. They've done well on the LSAT. And the committee may look at that and say, "Well, we we just don't think that these grades are as predictive as somebody who is 22 and applying right out of college." We don't have much more there to look at, so that that could be one example. Or, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have this question about: Are there any of our programs that we think you you could contribute to? So, uh, we have the Epstein program in public interest law and policy. Maybe somebody, although their numbers are below both medians, maybe. They have uh, had an incredible career so far in the public sector, and the committee feels that, that they're going to go on and change the world, you know? So um, there's just way too many examples that you could, could give. But I think what's relevant to an applicant is to apply to a range of schools. Uh, and so look up those numbers at least where you can, right? All schools, at least at a minimum, are going to publish their 25th percentile, their medians, and their 75th. And you know it—it's it, it, very easy to have a sense of your of your odds. And you know, sure, take some chances. Uh, apply to some schools where maybe your your chances are low, uh, but you never know, right? That could happen. And also apply to some schools that you've researched that you'd be happy to attend, uh, where your odds are high, right? And then apply to a whole range, a bunch, depending on how many you can afford to apply to. Uh, that are in the middle, right? Where you have a 50-50 chance. And it and then it'll work out. From that perspective, that's hopefully that's more relevant than for me trying to articulate every possible example. And plus we're just people reading these files. You know, we never know what's going to be presented in front of us and what might might move a committee. I, I think I have to, you know, we have to be realistic that um and and, and we could talk about this for a long time, but law schools are ranked, right? I'm sure everybody watching knows about US News and World Report rankings, which uh, you know, we could talk about for a while. But the bottom line is 25% of a law school's ranking is based on three criteria. And two of those criteria represent the bulk of that. And that's the median LSAT and the median GPA. Medians, not average. So we have to pay attention to, to our medians. But when it comes to the fifty percent of the class that's going to be below those medians, we can look at a lot of these other factors that are important to us. So that's the best way I can think of to to explain it.
1: Um, Matt, I'll let you comment on that if you want to. Um, I also have another question about um, undergraduate transcripts. So if you do you have anything to add to what Rob said?
3: You know, I think Rob gave a great answer. Um, at the end of the day, you know, everybody needs to put the, they need to tell their story as effectively as possible in their application because somebody who's going to get in against the sort of odds, you know, Rob, you know, the sort of example that Rob cited of, you know, two people out of a hundred might've gotten in, in a particular category, anybody who's going to get in um, with those kinds of odds is going to, is going to first do so because they told a great story and because, whoever is reading their application for whatever reason, and we can all imagine the reasons that would exist, whoever is reading their application uh, is thinking, whatever the case is with this person's GPA or LSAT, uh, I want this person to be a member of our law school community. Um, And that's going to happen first because you've told your story very effectively. So, But I think Rob gave a great
1: answer. Um, Given the GPA matters, so much and that U.S. News does not care how difficult it was for, you know, a certain student to get a certain GPA. How closely do you pay attention to a student's major, to their undergraduate institution, to the difficulty of their curriculum, and to all these things that are hard to quantify?
3: Yeah. Well, um, Rob and I could probably write a thesis on as well as all of our colleagues across Many law schools in this country could write you a thesis on our problems with us news Um, We do not necessarily endorse it Um, We live in and it is what it is sort of universe Um, but one of the problems with the us news methodology is Just as you say um, It's focus on sort of a median gpa Uh, does not permit methodologically for US News itself, for example, to take into account uh, things such as the uh, difficulty of curriculum, of school, of challenges that a student may have faced while they were in college, including certain things that, you know, we've not discussed tonight, like has somebody been working 30 hours a week while they're in school in order to help pay for it? I mean, that's a big deal, right? Um, however, we are looking at those things. When we are assessing an application for admission, we're looking at where the student went to school and how they performed. I think our you know, our feeling is how has this applicant in all phases of their life, including in their academic curriculum, how have they performed within the context of uh the circumstances, of their own life and within the circumstances of their academic environment, um, and so we are helping to contextualize that um, in our in our review process. It's not simply looking at you know a GPA and that's it. You know, we're reviewing the actual uh, transcript. We're looking at how the applicant did over time. We're looking at what else the applicant may have been involved with during college to help sort of assess. Uh, the GPA in that context, we're um, seeing where they went to school, all kinds of things are going uh, into that. Um, I will say that, you know, there are some rigorous majors out there, um, but I do find that oftentimes people who have participated and been deeply involved in those rigorous majors as students have oftentimes made up for perhaps a lower gpa by doing a little bit better on the lsat so it's not like they're not bringing uh you know a a metric to the table so to speak uh in the admissions process oftentimes um but certainly you know we are Within you know within our ability to do so, we are looking at all elements of an applicant's academic record, um, and that includes things that go beyond just sort of assessing things in in search of a particular median LSAT.
1: Okay, I've gone over time and I want to hand it over, but there's one more question I want to ask, and I'm gonna it's tough. I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot Hemingway style. But if you could give one piece of advice. To someone who knows they're going to apply to law school in two or three years but hasn't yet, in six words or fewer, what would it be if this is possible?
2: They're going to apply in two or three years.
1: Yeah, or just uh, in in the future. They're not applying right right now.
2: I'm going to go. You know, there's a lot. I'm going to go with uh, give some thought to who you're going to recommend you and 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 get to know those people. Think about recommenders. Or cultivate recommenders? Cultivate or... recommenders. I would say,
3: um, don't worry about us. Meaning when you're making decisions about elective classes or what to get involved with on campus or whether to take a, a you know time between undergrad and law school or what to do with that time if you do take it or what internship to take, none of that, none of those decisions... Should be made on a substantive level by your hope for what may happen in the law school admissions process, because we're looking for people of all kinds of backgrounds. Um, so you know, you do your best to live your life in in a way that is befitting your interests, and um, that that serves you well, and puts your best foot forward when, when you apply two or three years from now. But for now, you don't need to worry about us.
1: That's great advice. Don't worry about us and connect with your potential recommenders. If you have a question, we would prefer it if you raise your hand so we can hear your voice. We will look at uh, questions that you type if nobody wants to raise their hand, but it's so nice to talk to you all. Um, so I'm sure somebody's going to raise their hand. Great. Cindy, you can unmute yourself and ask your question.
4: Hello, Mr. Schwartz and Mr. D'Arc. D- it's very nice of you to give us such useful advice. And I'm an international student. Um, actually, I graduated from a university that is not in an English-speaking country. And I often heard that for law schools because um, maybe the admission officers, they don't know much about they might not be familiar with four universities, so they tend to emphasize a lot on our LSAT scores. So they might uh, they might pick uh, international students based on the 50th, 75th percentile score. Is it true? And also, I want to ask about scholarships. So for what kind of students would you really like to give them scholarships? What is there any particular criteria or what kind of characters is the ones that you prefer and also for um, international students as I said because admission officers might not be familiar with foreign universities might not know about their curriculums or the difficulty of their curriculums and or other stuff so what do what criteria do you usually use to evaluate an international student? Thank
1: you, Matt. I'm going to turn over the first question to you. Is it true that law schools are only admitting um, international students with a, who, who hit the 75th percentile median? And more broadly, are international students at some sort of disadvantage? And how how do you evaluate them?
3: No, it, and international students are not at a disadvantage. Um, You know, at GW Law, and I'm sure the same is true at UCLA Law as well, we receive quite a number of applicants uh, who have attended, uh, who are international students and who have attended non-US schools. So we are actually quite accustomed to those kinds of applicants and they are not disadvantaged in the process. In other words, we're not looking for them to uh, necessarily um, jump through a hurdle that other applicants are not expected to do. Um, so, for example, the seventy-fifth percentile on the on the uh, LSAT um, is not some kind of requirement, uh, hidden or otherwise, in looking at international applicants. That said, I will say that I do think the LSAT probably weighs more heavily for international applicants than it does for uh, applicants who have gone to U.S. and Canadian colleges. The reason for that is simple, uh, and that is because international applicants are not coming to us with a a, a GPA that has been calculated by LSAC. And so ultimately the LSAT becomes the sort of single academic numeric metric that we have in that application. but we're still looking at their academic record. Um, there are a lot of times, frankly, when um, you know I've recommended admission for international applicant who was a little bit below on our LSAT and did not have a GPA because they' they were bringing to the table uh, you know quite stellar credentials in other ways from their performance in a school overseas um, or their their work professionally. Um, so I just know in our own experience here at GW law, that it's, it's simply not the case that, you know, you have to have some sort of 75th percentile or something like that in order to, to be considered for admission. Um, but again, I do think that, it, you know, the LSAP probably is a bit, a, a bit more important because it is the one academic metric that we have. Um, the one thing I would say about, uh, you know, international applicants is the same as, as I was saying about other applicants as well which is the application is your opportunity to tell your story so for example you know one of the questions that cindy asked was about the difficulty of the curriculum and would we know about that now fortunately if you're applying to a school that has a fair number of international applicants it could be that you know people like me reviewing the application do have some sense of of what you know what the school's curriculum is like um whether wherever that school may be but if there's any concern about that, it's incumbent upon the applicant herself to, perhaps, through an addendum, discuss what she studied and, and, and you know what her academic experience was like at that non-US. school. And if that helps the applicant feel better that we're going to have a better sense of their story, then by all means do that.
1: Thanks. Rob, can I just turn uh, part two over to you? How do you make decisions about financial aid for international applicants or for domestic applicants? merit yeah. based financial aid i want to qualify yeah
2: well it uh, is interesting i i first of all uh, i don't know if everybody out there has heard of the aba 509 reports but that is a very good opportunity for any law school that you're interested in to take take a look at uh, because all the information is in the same format and one piece of the information that you'll find there is what percentage of the student body receives a scholarship and actually You'll get more detailed information on how much scholarship money is given out like what's the 25th percentile the median the 75th percentile how many get full tuition things like that in terms of how we do it every school may be a little bit different so it's always helpful to check with your individual uh, schools that you're looking at but here at ucla there's both a need component and, and what we call a merit component for the need component applicants need to apply for it they need to fill out the fafsa and they need to fill out um, our own institutional application. Now, with international applicants, it's it's difficult. We cannot consider them for need-based aid. We can't because they're just not able to attach a U.S. tax return that we're going to be able to analyze. So, um, when it comes to international applicants, just as a quick aside, um, we will take that into account when we're trying to uh, to uh, to award a package and any international admitted student is welcome to share their financial circumstances with me, with our financial aid office, we'll do the best we can. Um, But but largely our packages are gonna be based on need if you want us to consider that. And then what we call merit, which is gonna be largely based on your grades and your test scores. Now it's not that the other components of your application aren't relevant, they are. And that's why, you know, I'm sure some members of your audience are familiar with uh, the website LawSchoolNumbers.com. right? You can go on there for UCLA, and you know, not everybody is telling the truth there, but I find it to be largely accurate. But you will see differences in people with the same LSAT and GPA in terms of the amount they're given. Um, and that is based on the other factors, but the differences aren't usually huge. Um, and so that might be a little bit here, a little bit there based on some other aspects of the, of, the, of the file, things like you were talking about earlier that Matt was addressing. Uh, so maybe maybe somebody has uh, a similar GPA as somebody else, but it was a more rigorous program, uh, or it was at a school where um, there's more grade deflation. So those are the kinds of things we can look at a little bit with the scholarship process, but it is largely based on the, on the numbers there.
1: Thanks, Rob. So Bradley, you can unmute yourself and ask your question. Yes, hello. thank you. Um, just just curious, uh, what kind, or maybe you guys could explain, maybe there's not a disadvantage to applying a little bit later in the cycle. Um, for example, maybe you took the uh, October, November LSAT and didn't get the score you wanted, uh, and so you want to take again in January. If all other aspects of the application are done and ready to go by the time you get that January score, um, which would be, you know, beginning mid-February, um, are applicants that are in that position at any type of disadvantage other than maybe, you know, I, I get the scholarships are of, of, of being awarded at this time, but other than that, is there any disadvantage to that? Matt, can you take this one first?
3: Sure. You know, um, I know that there is a lot of concern among applicants about what's referred to as rolling admission. Um... And some are so concerned about it that they sort of have this, I think, false notion that, for example, if they haven't applied by some arbitrary date in October, for example, that their chances will decline, uh, their chances of admission will decline with each passing day. And that's not really how it works. Um... I think generally speaking, you want to apply when your application is going to be strongest, not when it's going to be fastest. So in Bradley's case, for example, if that means that in fact, you know, taking the January LSAT means that he would be applying with a score that's maybe a few points higher than the score that he might've earned in the fall, um, then that's better than trying to rush an application in um, when it's not going to be Um, At its strongest and what it's not going to reflect the applicants best potential because that's what we're looking for in the admissions process Um, I want to say too that that may be true as well of some students who are applying as college seniors Um, If they started out in college and had a rocky freshman year for whatever reason and they have been experiencing uh, an upward trend in their grades then perhaps they don't want to be first out of the gate with their application because their fall grades during their senior year are In all likelihood going to continue that improvement trend and the more evidence there is of that the better their their grades will look overall Um, and so at the very least they would want to update their application with their fall grades once they came in um all of that said obviously we are Admitting people rolling admission essentially means that we are admitting people all throughout the admission cycle uh, And that people will find out their decision The the date when they find out their decision will be roughly correlated to the date when their application became complete So it is certainly true um, That you know, if you're waiting until the very end of the application cycle um You could face a, a a more Uh, Uphill climb than if you were able to get your application in earlier um, you know, so I All things, you know All things equal I think it would be great for people who are going to have their strongest applications earlier in the cycle to go ahead and apply earlier But I think given the specific circumstances that bradley is discussing and which Certainly, don't just affect bradley but affect a whole host of applicants You know, I think applying later with a stronger score would probably be better and in fact you know people should should take down their nervousness and anxiety about rolling admission just a little bit because people are so anxious about it when in fact we're still um going to receive about half of our applications after the new year begins so it's not like everybody has applied in september and october and that we're completely finished with our you know uh with admitting people um before the winter break
1: thanks matt Nicole, I'm going to go to you. You can unmute yourself and ask your question.
4: Hi, Matt and Rob. Thanks so much for this. This is, is, has a lot of useful information. Uh, Rob talked about a student who has been out of school for a long time. I just want to clarify that. I've been out of school. I graduated from GW in 2015, so about four years ago. Does that is that considered a long time? And um, I have letters of recommendations from two professors there, but should I have one That's from um, my employer since I have been out of school for four years. And my second question is, I have a six month gap in my resume during which I was job searching. Should I include an addendum explaining this gap in my application?
1: Can you take this one, Rob?
2: Sure, Um, so a bunch of questions there. Let me start with the most recent, see if I get them all. Um, I I would include an addendum on on the gap. It doesn't have to be long, but just briefly, just want to point out to the committee that. You know, you, you were looking for a job during that period. Um, uh, with regard to letters of recommendation, that's another whole topic that, that we could get into. You, each school is gonna perhaps be different. So here at UCLA, we require two letters, but we leave it up to you to decide who should write them. If you felt, in my opinion, if you felt that all three of those letters, the two academic and the one from work were equally strong, I would choose one academic and one work letter, but uh, you certainly could be admitted with two academic strong letters as well. So we leave it up to you, but unfortunately, we can't take three. Um, And then I think your first question was, well, is 2015 a long time? And um, that's why I always worry about giving a specific example, because, you know, uh, in my mind, though, and this is just me. No, that that wasn't an example the, the example that I had in mind. I'm talking about somebody who's maybe been out of school. And again, there's no uh, it's not like if I say 10 years that nine doesn't qualify, you know. But I, I was had more more in mind when I gave that example. Uh, but work experience is something that we value and that we look at. And uh, absolutely having a having a number of years of work experience uh, will be will be valued in, in the process. But you know the example I was giving was just in my mind for what it was worth was somebody who, you know, really bombed college, right? And then has had a whole career for a number of years, did incredibly well on the LSAT, and just says, "Look, I wasn't serious. I'm not the person I was back then. So it's not three or four years that has gone by. It's a longer period of
1: time." Okay, I'm going to call in Kimberly. Kimberly, if you can um, make your microphone work, that's fine. And if not, I'll just read your question. Kimberly asks, can you touch on wait lists? What are the chances a student who has been put on your school's wait list will get in? Matt, what are we thinking? 31? 82? (laughs) You know,
3: uh, if only we all had a crystal ball. The most frustrating part about the wait list admission process uh, is that we don't know much. Um, Certainly not at this point. Uh, and oftentimes once even once we get to that process, there are there are uh, Unknowable things that are unknowable to both the applicant and to us on the admissions side um, And so we kind of share that we have a commonality with people who are waiting uh, on on wait lists um, You know in some years at GW we have had a fairly robust you know waitlist admission process Uh, And in other years, uh, there was a year a couple of years ago when we admitted, I think, zero people from the wait list from April until August. Um, Deposit deadlines at law schools uh, tend to be in April. There could be some variation among schools, but essentially uh, April is the month when most law schools are requiring most applicants to let them know by placing a seed deposit whether or not they intend to enroll. And so no law schools are really gonna know anything until that point about you know what the potential for uh, admission from the waitlist is going to be. Uh, and then even after that, the reason that I say there are things that are unknowable to those of us on the admission side and waitlisted applicants is that even after that, the waitlist process can be so fluid um, because you know, things happen in the lives of people who've submitted even seed deposits. You know, people get a promotion at a job and and you know, decide that they're going to defer their enrollment, or a family issue comes up and they decide that they're not going to be able to attend law school that uh that year. Um, or they get in off the wait list at, you know, another school that they truly want to attend. Uh, and though, and so even though they've submitted a seat deposit at, at one school, they They give that seat deposit up in order to attend a different school. And so these kinds of things happen, you know, uh, oftentimes deep into the summer. Um, And so it truly is uh, an unpredictable process. And we share in the, uh, you know, the sense of uh, frustration that some applicants who are on the wait list may have about that. That said, if you're on the wait list, honestly, the most important thing that you can do is to tell us, uh, you know, credibly that you are interested in our school, that you are, you know, likely to attend if admitted, um, and to demonstrate that interest with some sincerity, perhaps if you have the means and the opportunity to, you might wanna come visit us, Um, you know, just, you know, making sure that we're aware of your level of interest. Because the fact is, we want the waitlist process to move expeditiously. And if and when we make offers of admission, we're going to want a fairly quick turnaround time for the applicant to let us know that they're going to be able to attend.
1: That's really helpful. Thanks so much. I'm afraid that we're out of time. It went really fast from my point of view. Um, I'm sure that there are so many more good questions that we just didn't have a, a chance to throw to you. But I am so grateful both to both of you, Matt and Rob, for making yourselves available and sharing your knowledge. On the whole, I just got the impression that you're thoughtful, you're not scary, and that you're really trying to understand what's going on uh, from the other side of the desk. You're not rejecting people on a whim. You're just thinking about you know, what, what circumstances led to the, the very small and minimal product in front of you. You know, what was the context? Um, and, and maybe the corollary to that is that if you're applying, help them understand the context. They, they're, it sounds like they're interested in the context. They want to know, um, you know, why your transcript looks the way it does, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's reassuring to know that uh, it's, it's maybe harder than people think to make like one tiny accidental blunder that's going to completely doom them um and just to know that you're honoring all the work that they put into their application by reading it carefully um so thank you both so much for being here with us tonight
2: thanks for having us it's always great and people have so many great questions and i hope that they they found it helpful
3: yeah and if if anyone has further questions they're welcome
2: to follow up same with me i hope we do this again
1: me too all right well have a good night everyone thank you for attending good night thanks david Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Hello, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please give us a rating on iTunes or Google Play. And if you're looking for more information about law school admissions, head on over to 7 sagecom slash admissions.